And as you are, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Paul's first, atim- for Paul's first epistle to Timothy. It's first Timothy. And this evening we're taking up the third chapter. First Timothy chapter 3. We'll commence our reading there at verse 8. Hear once again the word infallible and errant of our God. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. But the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's word. And may he indeed bless its reading and hearing to us this evening. Our subject this evening, of course, is the diaconate. But as we come to 1 Timothy 3, you'll notice here that in one sense we're reversing uh, perhaps the natural order of things. We're taking up, before we take up the diaconate itself, the qualifications for deacons. We're taking up here what is necessary to be found in a man uh, before we take up the subject of the office itself. And in order to somewhat make an explanation as to why we're taking this order, I would simply say to you that as we look throughout the scriptures, as we look at simply the space that has been given to the subject of this office, we'll find that not a lot of space has indeed been given. And so as we look throughout the scriptures for direction to think about the diaconate right, we'll see here, I believe, that in 1 Timothy 3, as we even look over the qualifications of these deacons, we'll find much about the office itself. In fact, I believe as we look at the qualifications that are given to us in this text, this will better help us understand what the function of this office is to look like, not only in the church, but even as it respects the world. And so we take up this list. And we take up this list, I believe, often because, well, of course, we're looking at a deacon's election. And so this is the usual fare of congregations that are looking to such an event. But as we look at this text this evening, I'd like to step back from our immediate context and look at the passage itself, the context from which this list comes. And in order to do so, I need to ask a very basic question. Why do we have this list? Why do we have this list here, here in 1 Timothy? And friend, there are a number of ways one could answer the question. But all we have to do is look at the whole epistle as, as one literary device, as one literary unit, rather, and we'll find here that the Apostle is addressing various concerns that the Ephesians are facing. In the first two chapters, you remember that the Ephesian crisis is predominantly a theological one. And so the Apostle, writing under inspiration of God's Spirit, addresses the false teachers. 
But then, as you turn to chapter 5, you'll notice the apostle comes to very practical matters. He deals with an issue that arises over widows. And the primary problem there is that there are widows who have been wrongly added to the number. And they have been wrongly added, is that it's evident, because of their character. They themselves are people who ought not to have been made chargeable to the church. And also their circumstances indicate that there were those in the church, their own family, that could have supported them. And so they should not have been added to the number. That was part of the crisis that the church in Ephesus was facing. A crisis which was manifestly a diaconal one. It concerned intimately the practical, the temporal issues that the church in Ephesus had encountered. But as you look at our text, 1 Timothy 3, what you find here is the apostle, before he comes to the specific admonitions that pertain to that crisis, he gives us a portrait of the man who's to be in charge of these things. He gives us a portrait of the deacon. In other words, what he's doing for us is he's setting before us a picture of the man who is supposed to be setting these things aright. And so, of course, after he's dealt with false teachers, he comes to the character of the elder, the real overseer. And now before he deals with the diaconal crisis, he gives us a portrait of the man who should be in office, the portrait of the deacon. But if we look at our text specifically, these verses, verses 8 to 15, it is appropriate for us to ask even another question. What is this list? What are the items that we have here? How are we supposed to interpret them? And friend, of course, these are qualifications. But as we look at this passage of Scripture, you'll notice that there are perhaps a number of ways that you could read each item. Perhaps the way that most read this text, and even the list that goes before it in 1 Timothy 3, is in perhaps the most basic and restricted sense. So when the apostle says, the deacon must not be one who is double-tongued, uh, they would interpret that text as saying, simply, he must not be one who is a tail-bearer. It doesn't pertain at all to any of the other duties of the tongue. Now, as we read throughout Scripture, of course, and we encounter lists like this, we understand that often Scripture is using what we would call ellipsis to hold before us certain qualifications. What is an ellipsis? An ellipsis is just this idea that there is one part of a category that is denominated to stand for the whole category. When we think of the moral law, we think of the self-same thing. When the Lord God says that we are not to bear false witness, we understand that that means more than just testifying at a criminal, at a criminal investigation or, or standing solemnly under oath in any case. We understand that far more is involved there. And friend, in many ways, we're supposed to understand that this text is doing precisely the same thing. It is giving us categories, and these categories are denominated by very specific aspects that lie within, or items that lie within that category. And so whenever we come across the words that the deacon is not to be double-tongued, we're supposed to understand here that he is to be a man who is blameless as it regards all of those things that pertain to the tongue. All of those duties that are required of the tongue he must demonstrate that he has genuinely and, and in earnest sought to fulfill them. There's even a third way we look at this list. And this is a list I'd encourage us to think about. This is the way I'd encourage us to think about it this evening. And that is, not only is this giving to us categories that really denominate even greater or, or numerically even larger items, we should look at this list as it sets before us 
the kinds of things in which the deacon must be an example. This is not merely an elliptical list. It is an exemplary one. What do I mean by that? My friends, just briefly what I'm saying here is that not only is this list holding up to us whole categories of qualifications, it's telling us that the man who's in view here must be exemplary in all of these ways. It's not just necessary, in other words, that there is a trace of these qualities found in the man. But the man's life must genuinely be an example of these things. Why do I say that? Well, friend, first of all, manifestly, the men who are in view here must be men who openly demonstrate the qualities that are described. The apostle is setting before us qualifications. And the purpose of this list, of course, is so the congregation knows what kind of man should hold office. They must be able to see these things in the man. There's even a further reason why he must be exemplary in these things. My friend, it's the very self-same thing the Apostle says in 1 Timothy 4. He writes to Timothy thus. He says, Be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. That's 1 Timothy 4.12. My friend, first of all, as we look at that text, it's important to ask the question, what does he mean by example? Does he mean he just needs to be an illustration? Uh, Does he just need to set before us a basic pattern in the sense that we can observe it? An abstract. No, the word in the original, that word example, means to be a mold. That is, Paul is telling Timothy pointedly, your life has to be such that the church in Ephesus can pour their lives into it and be shaped by it. Your life is genuinely supposed to be such a pattern of godliness that other lives can be poured into it And in doing so, by following that power, we'll be more conformed to the image of Christ. A friend, for any office there in the church, that's a solemn thing. And you would hope that as we would hear that, it would cause us to tremble. But that's the very same thing the Apostle calls Timothy to. To genuinely be a mold. What's striking about this text is, Timothy was required to do everything that we're looking at. It's a striking thing. Between these two lists, the first and the last parts of 1 Timothy 3, there are only two points of difference. There are 11 qualifications. Nine of them are identical between both the overseer and the deacon. The points of difference are the deacon must not, does not need to be apt to teach, nor is he called to be an overseer. In every other regard, the lists are identical. And so, friend, the point is just this. The deacon, too, just as Timothy and just as elders all, they must exemplify the kinds of things that are described in our text. Now, friend, that, again, raises yet another question, doesn't it? Why must the deacon be exemplary? Why must he be a man, not only a man who's a believer, not only a man who's trustworthy, why must he exemplify so that his life could be genuinely a pattern of Christian piety. Now, there are a number of ways that folks have answered that in the past, uh, but really the impetus for the question is perhaps a very basic one, isn't it? We know, even as we haven't yet looked at the diaconate itself, that the diaconate is primarily concerned with the temporal affairs of the church. 
And so we can ask the question, can't we? Uh, Well, do we not have godless electricians who are nevertheless good electricians? Uh, Don't we have godless practical men who are nevertheless good at practical things? And friends, the answer to that question is, of course, yes. So it returns us to our initial. Why must men who are primarily in their office concerned with temporal matters be such exemplary, exemplary pious men? And again, the answer that is often given to that is, well, we need these men to be reliable because they're dealing with church funds. In other words, we need men who we can trust. And well, it's helpful for us if we can trust a man whenever we recognize that he's a believer. Friend, I want to say to you very pointedly, um, because we believe not in radical but in total depravity, and because we believe in the restraining grace of God, uh, the trustworthy pagan is not a mythical creature. That doesn't answer the question. In fact, it creates a greater question, especially given what we're told in verse 9. Not only are these deacons supposed to be trustworthy, in the ninth verse they are to hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. These men are not just to be reliable pagans. These men are not just to be trustworthy. They are to be men, as the apostle says, who hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. A friend, that does answer in some sense the question we started with. Why is it that the deacon, who's concerned in temporal matters primarily, why is it that he must be a man who is eminently an exemplary pious? Because his labor flows out of that ninth verse. It must be manifest to the congregation and to the onlooking world that what he does, no matter how mundane, He does as one who holds the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. In other words, friend, the way the deacon works is from a gospel principle, and evidently so. He's not just a humanitarian. He's not just a handyman. He is a man who labors out of the gospel from a principle of the power of grace and of that constraining love of Christ. And so, what is the theme? Well, friends, as we look at this whole list put together, given what we've said already, we find here the apostles teaching us that deacons must be men of exemplary and exercised piety. Deacons must be men of exemplary and exercised piety. And we take, first of all, the example. So I'll direct your attention back to the 8th verse. Here the apostle gives us, of course, the list. But before he gives us the list, I want you to notice the word that proceeds. Likewise. Must the deacons be grave? That word likewise could be translated in the same manner. Just as it is incumbent upon overseers in the church to be eminently godly men, the apostle says in the same manner, deacons must be as well. Note that. As we think about the idea that these men are to be exemplary, This connecting word in the 8th verse simply underscores that fact. Just as overseers are to be exemplary, says the apostle, so must also be deacons. My friend, why? That does take us back to what I just said. These are men who are eminently, not simply, moral pagans. They're not simply trustworthy men as men. 
But these are men who labor as those who hold the mystery of the faith. These are men who labor out of a principle of the gospel. And the point I want you to understand this friend that is so so clear in the text. They must be manifestly such men. It must be evident that they are such men. Now friend, as we look at this text, that's how we're supposed to see this list. So whenever the the apostle says deacons must be great, which in this case means they must be respectable men. Uh, They they must be men, in other words, that, that are careful, conscientious in all things, so as not to bring just reproach upon them. We're supposed to understand they are such men, not because the light of nature has taught them to be so, though the light of nature teaches as much. They are such men because they are men of faith. Or come to the next qualification. They're not to be double-tongued, which in the scriptures it means, quite literally, they're not to be double-speakers. That can be taken in various senses. They're not to be tail-bearers, first of all. But even more than that, the idea is these are men who are governing their tongue and all of their interactions with other people as it regards their tongue. The kind of man that's described here is, in other words, the kind of man that's given to us in the larger catechism. Those who are preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. Who have a charitable esteem of our neighbors. They're loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. Sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. They have an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them. In other words, friend, these are those who are not quick to criticize. These are men who are very careful with their tongues so as to safeguard their neighbor as much as they can. And why are they such men? Because, as the ninth verse tells us, they are those who hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. I want you to understand, friend, I could point out to you the Nicomachean Ethics written by Aristotle. I could take you to Plato's Republic, and I could find in those places those pagan philosophers commending the various traits that we have before us. But the point the Apostle is making is, these are not just naturally trustworthy people. These are not people who are so because of the restraining grace of God. These are, these are such people because of the regenerative work of the grace of God. These are virtues that are found in them from a principle of grace. And so as we continue, we're told here that these are men who are not to be given to much wine. That is, they're to be under no control of any substances whatsoever. And we can even extend that beyond wine, can't we? They're not to be men who are constrained by sensual pleasure. They're not people who are devoted, as it were, to the flesh. And why is that? Again, this is a virtue any pagan would notice. Friend, they're not constrained by those things because they are indwelt by the Spirit of God. They are those, again, who hold the mystery of the faith. Now, friend, they are also people who are not greedy or filthy lucre, says the Apostle. What does that mean? I mentioned this to you before when we looked at the first part of 1 Timothy 3. But in that text, we recognize that what the Apostle is saying is they are not those who are greedy for gain. They, they are those who only want to make a living if it's lawful. But let me put that to you in a different way. The kind of man that's described here is a man who would rather go without than sin. Or allow me to put before you the phrase that I often set before you. This is a man described here who would rather suffer than he would sin. That's the kind of man he's described in this text. And again, when we come to the ninth verse, we're told why he is such a man. He's one who holds the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now, as we 
just leave a communion season where we've thought much about uh, Psalm 25, 14. The secret of the Lord belonging to those who look to Him by faith. You see, the same idea holds true. When we come across this word mystery, we're supposed to understand here, not that He holds some special knowledge cognitively. He holds the mystery of the faith. That is, He holds that kind of knowledge of the Gospel in such a way that the reprobate can't. He has an experience of these things. And so, friend, as the church looks at this man, and to some extent, even as the world looks at this man, what do they see? A man who is genuinely experienced in the knowledge of the gospel. He has a knowledge that leads to fruition. He has a knowledge of the gospel that produces fruit. A knowledge that only true believers possess. And so, friend, when we look at his life, here's what it cries. I will show thee my faith by my words. Here you have a man who the apostle could describe as one working out of faith, a labor of love, patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here are, are the exhortations that are set before him. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, you do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Whether you therefore he eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even in mundane things, he sets before the church and before the world this reality. That he has been radically changed by the gospel. And this has radically changed how he functions. Now... Friend, what I'm saying to you very simply is this, that in mundane things, they must testify to the gospel. And this point that I would drive at is the very same thing that we would imagine when we think about a company sending out their workers in uniform. They are working, they're on the job in uniform to testify that they're not doing this of their own volition. That they're not doing this in their own name or for their own sake. They're doing this in the name and for the company. Here the deacon is supposed to be a man who labors, even only in temporal matters. And it's manifestly that he labors for Christ's sake. It's evidence to the church and to the world that he labors out of a principle of grace from the gospel. And I know what you're going to ask me now. And it's a fair question, and that is, how can we, in mundane things set before the world the reality that we work from the principle of grace? That's a question I think we immediately run to, but I I would submit to you this evening that's the wrong question to be asking at this stage. Men, and really all in the congregation, all of us, should be asking a question that goes even before that. And that is just this. Do I see all things, even the mundane things, in relation to Christ. You see before a man can be exemplary. In setting before the world. That he works in mundane things. For the gospel's sake. We must first be a people who see all things. In relation to Christ. Christ sets that before us in Mark 9. Whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink. In my name. Because ye belong to Christ. Verily I say unto you. He shall not lose his reward. Christ's point is very basic. Those who would serve even in giving something so mundane and small as it seems, a cup of water 
seeing it as somehow attached to the cause of Christ. Here Christ says that it's commendable. They shall not lose their reward. Friend, this is the kernel of Christian piety that we have lost. We have lost it. We've lost it largely because we are a people who don't meditate. And we will not attain to this unless we become a people who ask this basic question, who meditate much on it. How even in the small things in the day am I setting forth Christ? How is my life genuinely in every respect impacted by the gospel? Now it brings us to second, our second point, and that's taken here from verses 10 to 12. Not only are these men to be exemplary in piety, but these men are also to be exercised men. And I take this from the 10th verse where the apostle says, let these also first be proved. The word proved there is literally to be tried in a furnace. And so that's the way the apostle Peter describes our faith. The faith is tried with fire that it might be found in the praise and honor and glory of the appearing of Jesus Christ. The idea is the idea of smelting. The metal is heated so that the dross comes to the top, the top is scraped, and then the metal that it remains is pure. It's proved. That's the idea that's behind this word in our text. Now, I think many have taken this text and said, well, that means that we need to make sure that the men who are, who are potentially going to be deacons are manifestly handy men. We give them handy projects around the church building and we see how well they do. Friend, I'd submit to you that there's not a mention at all in this text about those kinds of practical exams. Not at all. In fact, as we constrain our focus just to this third chapter, what are the kinds of things that deacons must prove according to the list that's given to us here? What's striking is not one word of practical abilities given. What is it that they are to prove? Just what has gone before. In other words, they are to prove. It is to be tested in them that they are men of genuine piety. That is the trial they undergo. And in this way, friend, you have to recognize this is the parallel with verse 8. When, sorry, uh, verse 6 rather. When the Lord says that the overseer must not be a novice. It's not that he must be an old man. It's that he must be a man who is exercised in the faith. The same is true of the deacon. His piety must be proved. All those qualifications that the apostle has already given, those must be tested. Manifestly exercised. And so, friend, what do we have here? Well, deacons must demonstrate godliness under trial. And very briefly at this point, I want you to notice that in verses 8 and 10, you have something of a trial in view. You have a man who is grave, verse 8, verse 10, he's blameless. And the context of that trial, the context of that scrutiny is the world. He is above reproach as the world looks at him. That's the idea that the apostle has in view. As the world judges him, as the world puts his life to the test, as the world puts his life into the furnace, he is above reproach. At least above lawful reproach. But then as you come to verse 11, you'll notice that there's even another sphere of testing. He says, even so, their wives must be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Verse 12, they must be those who are ruling their children and their own house as well. 
Now friend, it's important here that we understand the question that's behind those two verses. Why are these two verses added to this list of qualification and this sphere of testing? Well, immediately we think, well, it just means that he needs to be able to function in his home well. He must be able to lead his wife into godliness well. He must rule his children well. Friend, it's so much more than that. The reality is, and this would require us to go somewhat back to the second chapter of this epistle, but the reality is the diaconate and its home is to manifest everything the deacon's life is to manifest. Not that it is capable of functioning only. Not that it's just a home that gets on. Friend, it is to be a home that manifests the gospel. That's the point. This is not just to be a home of civility. Not just a home of of, of general affection. It's to be a home that is really impacted by the gospel. It's to be a home, in other words, so described in Ephesians 5. I mean, note the kind of argument the apostle makes there. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And note this. For, that's his argument, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I emphasize those points of argument to say this. The apostle is saying, your home must function this way because of the gospel. That's why. It's not just that you have a sixth sixth commandment obligation not to kill each other. It's not just that you have an obligation in the fifth commandment to be sure that all things are well ordered. It's not just that you are in the second table sense supposed to be doing all things well. It is really the case that the gospel is supposed to transform homes. And so friend, when we come to this text and the apostle now turns his attention to this exercise of piety in the home, he's asking Is this a home manifestly touched, not by civility, but by the gospel? Is this a home that manifests Ephesians 5? And so, friend, the apostle is urging a kind of testing, a scrutiny in the world, a scrutiny even in his home. And the purpose of this testing is to see him under those pressures, to see him under duress, that they might see the man as he really is. He will be smelted in these moments. You see, friend, this is always the case, isn't it? That when God gives grace, he also tests it. This will be true for the deacon, but this will be true for every member in the church. God will give the grace and he'll put it to the test so that the world and the church may see in every sphere the authenticity, the strength, and the beauty of that grace that's been given. And finally, as we close, verse 13 is the end. The end for which the deacon is called to be exemplary in godliness. And one of the ends that's given there is is this phrase. They purchase to themselves a good degree. In the original, we could translate that they attain a high place or they have an accrued authority. And in addition to that, he says, they they will possess great boldness in the faith. Uh, That is great liberty, uh, great freedom in Christ. Now, friend, as we look at that word, especially the last word, boldness, 
And we see how it's used throughout the scriptures. It may help us understand a bit more, a bit more clearly at least what's meant there. Elsewhere it's translated great plainness of speech, 2 Corinthians 3. It is to be known openly, John 7. I spake openly to the world, says Christ in John 18. There is a sense of openness that the apostle says the deacon will know if he holds the office well. And what kind of openness could that be? Well, friend, I don't think we have to ask that question of a text we've not already looked at. It is a question that takes us back to James 2. Thou hast faith, says the apostle, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Friend, as the deacon does what he ought to do, as he sets an example of piety and as he sets an example of an exercised godliness before the church and before the world, and he does so as he works even in temporal matters, what is he doing? He is manifesting openly, not only the genuineness of his own faith, as James would describe it to us in James 2, but it also manifests to the world the reality of the regenerative power of divine grace. This really is a gospel that changes men. This is really a gospel that makes men who were once enemies of God, once filled with hatred, once a people only self-serving, to genuinely demonstrate the love of Christ in all things. That's the kind of openness that you see in this text. It will be manifest to the world. That his faith is genuine. And more than that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is genuinely a regenerative gospel. And so, friend, what we see here is that deacons in the right exercise of their office manifest the grace of Christ. As we close, there are just a few points of application. And perhaps most obviously, I suppose, um, as we come to a deacon election, the most Simple application is we are only to vote for such men. These are the only ones a congregation should look to um, as those who are to fill the office. Um, the reality is we're not looking merely for practical men, we're looking for pious men. But if I can move even beyond that, it does raise the question. First of all, to men who may be called to the office, men who are aspiring to the office, the question, obviously, that should be asked of us is, is this us? Is this you? And even a question behind that is, do you desire this to be true of you? Do you desire this to describe your own life? And if so, what are you doing? What are you doing to see these things cultivated under God's grace? For the congregation... This is also a critical point, isn't it? If the deacon is to be exemplary, well, friend, that means then that the congregation, as they vote for such men, they are saying solemnly, I would have my life poured in to their life like a mold because I see them following Christ. I see them attaining a degree of piety that I long myself to have. And so it's a fair question for a congregation. Do we long to be described, as we've looked at in this text, a people so thoroughly changed by the gospel 
that even in the most temporal of matters, it is manifest we work from the principle of the gospel. The comfort for the believer from this text is just this, that everything has in fact been touched by the gospel. Everything has. Even the temporal matters, says the apostle, have really been changed under Christ. And the idea then is that our mercy ministry here is not merely humanitarian aid. Our mercy ministry here is not merely to fulfill the second table of the law. Our our mercy ministry is predominantly to set before the world that Christ has really changed all things. He really is a Christ that makes all things new. Beloved, that should be an encouragement to us. Because as you think about it, as the people of God experience this mercy that flows from this principle of the gospel, that means even the temporal mercy that they know from one another is purchased at the cost of Christ's own blood. I mean, just think about it, friend. Have you received a meal from a Christian friend? Coming to you, tendered to you from Christian love. That's not a common meal, friend. Had Christ not died, had there been no living Christ, and had they themselves not been touched by the gospel, the food before you simply would not be. Friend, when we think about that, it certainly does change how we look even at the smallest of things in the church. It shows us that Christ really does make all things new. And so we are to be such people. And we are to look for such and pray for such men as we look to the deacon election. And so we are to pray that such men will be risen up and that we ourselves will be more conformed to the image of Christ as we see Christ formed in them and we following their example. May that be true of us here in Oakland. Amen.